This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. So I think one of the issues that we talk about in the group of faculty affairs is that that session, you know, what keeps you up at night? And I always thought that was a cute name for a session until I took this job. Oh, no. <laughs> and then I realized, yeah, there there are things that definitely keep us keep us awake at night. And so... I view that, you know, what I get to do for faculty development is very positive and very good for the faculty, good for the institution. But I also think of professionalism, disruptive faculty members as as an opportunity to really look at how do you how do you tackle those issues across the entire institution, especially since our clinical sites are, are scattered, you know, we have affiliated institutions, we have multiple practice sites. How do you bring all this together to really give everyone the advantage of a great working and learning environment? Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Amanda Termulan, the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs in the Office of Faculty Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Amanda, how does a rare pediatric non-Hodgkin lymphoma expert from Ohio end up in Minnesota? And I do want everybody to know that Amanda wins a winner winner chicken dinner award for being the newest associate dean. You've been in your role, I guess, 10 months now, Amanda, right? So thank you so much for inviting me to do this podcast. I've, I've been an avid listener and I've gained so much out of them. How did the person from Ohio end up in Minnesota? Well, it was actually via California. So I'm a pediatric hematologist oncologist and bone marrow transplanter. And my first faculty position was at Ohio State, at the Ohio State University. And I developed an interest in faculty development. And I was actually sponsored. There was a woman who was the division chief of pediatric surgery. And she said, I think you would be great for this dean's task force on promoting women in leadership in academic medicine. So, of course, being the early career faculty member that I was, I said, great, I'm, I'm in, let's do it. Had a great experience on that, on that task force. And then as I was working on that, this was back when the American Association of Medical Colleges had a position called the Women's Liaison Officer. And the at the time, the woman who was the women's liaison officer um, retired. And so, again, the leadership at the medical school said, how would you like to be the women's liaison officer to the AAMC? And, of course, I said, I would love that. So that really started my journey. Mm. And I didn't realize it at the time how much sponsorship was actually involved there, but Absolutely. Uh, People recognized the interest and gave me the opportunity to develop in that area. At what stage in your career were you? And I assume this was at 
back at The Ohio State when you were sponsored to be on the task force and then nominated for the Women's Liaison Officer. Were you assistant professor, associate professor? Give us a a sense of where you were in your career trajectory when these opportunities uh, were given to you and provided you by a sponsor. This was about, I would say, four to five years in as an assistant professor. Uh So it was early. And I, I... I loved going to the AAMC. I really enjoyed learning and getting guidance from all the experienced people that attended that. And I made it a point to go to the meeting every year and try to glean everything I could. Meanwhile, my day job progressed. I became more and more clinically active. I became more administratively involved, uh, moved into some leadership positions. And eventually, fast forward to about 2009, um, I applied to the ELAM program and was accepted. And that year really opened my mind as to what do I want to do for the next phase of my career. I've been a huge you know, clinician, educator, program grower, clinical researcher. What, what do I really want to do? And so part of that exploration was actually leaving Ohio and moving to California to Los Angeles. I was a professor at that time at the University of Southern California, and I ran a a small pediatric hematology oncology program in Long Beach, which was under the the umbrella of Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So hands-on financial experience, hands-on developing early career faculty, and more and more I began to contribute in the faculty development role at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Eventually I went there full-time, with an official title in faculty development for my division, which was a large division, and also working informally for the Department of Pediatrics. So how did I then jump to Minnesota? What I discovered for myself was that I could have an, a really bad oncology day, But if I could meet with an early career faculty member and give guidance about career, about research approaches, about mentoring, it became a great day. Hmm. And so that realization made me think, yeah, I really, this is where I get my positive resilience from. This is what, what makes me happy. This is... This really is very personally satisfying to me. Mm. And right after ELAM, I had gone to my first GFA meeting, so I got to meet a lot of the the professionals in the group on faculty affairs and really, again, learned, listened, thought, and applied what I had learned in my my day job. So about probably 18 months ago, um, my sister-in-law, who was also an ELAM, Lamb graduate and is the regional dean at the Duluth campus of the University of Minnesota, sent me a, an email and said, hey, you know, Minnesota is looking for an associate dean of faculty first, to which I responded, I just bought a house in L.A. I am not going anywhere. <laughs> not <laughs> and to then mention she went, going from L.A. to Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. So she waited. She was very smart. She waited a couple months, and then she sent it to me again in all caps, This is what you have always wanted to do, open the email. So I thought, okay. So I opened it, and I read it, and I thought, this is absolutely what I've always wanted to do. And when I look back to my ELAM 
experience, we did this exercise in the future history of your career. And the thing that I was going to do 10 years from then was to be an associate dean of faculty affairs. And so I was like, okay, so. We just had on the podcast um, last time uh, Nancy Spector, who took over from Paige Morhan having built the ELAM program and 25 years ago. I had no idea ELAM was 25 years um, in the making. And Nancy was telling us on the podcast that there are already over 1,200 alumni. So it's really wonderful to hear you are endorsing that program and that specific exercise, the future history of your career. And, and here you are. And um, it was directly applicable to you. Directly applicable and a real inflection point, I think, in my career. And now I am, I have my dream job. Wow. I absolutely love what I do at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> that is that is really incredible. I love that story, um, how, you, how you got there. And, oh, I, I just love the comment of a, having a really bad oncology day. But then when you meet with junior faculty, boom, that's where you get your resilience. And that is so true for so many of us. And and I think I talked once on my little fact chat when I was talking about how I got into this field the same way as I'm an off-the-charts e extrovert. And when um, I was just sitting doing my gerontology research day after day, week after week after month after month after year, writing papers and doing data analysis and writing grants, and it was such a lonely, for the most part, just a lonely, solitary endeavor. And then when I fell backwards into faculty development, the same experience you had that I actually felt when I could go home at the day, at the end of the day and interacted with somebody who was a few rungs down the ladder from me, but have a connection and feel like I was actually making an impact right here, right now, um, really was rewarding. And it was strange to me to go, oh, wait a minute, maybe I should be doing something that's more people oriented. So I, I feel the same kind of passion and draw that you would do that that you felt that so I think so many of us have that that our heart just swells when we are with faculty and so it's like oh that's right that's because I'm supposed to be doing this faculty development stuff yes it's definitely about overlapping your what you do for work with what you love so everybody's always dying to know can you describe your office and who's doing what and give us a bird's eye view I sure can. So my office, um, I have a full-time director of the Office of Faculty Affairs. And I will say, when I moved into this position, everyone in the office was new. And that wasn't because anything happened. It was because they all had grown professionally and got promoted um, out of the office. So I really started with all 100% new people. So I have a, a terrific director of my office, who actually comes out of education, so brings tech educational knowledge um, to the office. I have an executive assistant who does uh, project management. For We're trying to update our CB process, so project management um, handles all our data reporting to accrediting bodies, such as the AAMC or the LCME. Um, does and is our fr is our frontward facing face to our office so deals with a lot of the incoming questions calls etc i have a full time program specialist who focuses on our promotion and tenure processes for our tenure track and what we call our academic track faculty who also does our um, mentoring programs and faculty development programs 
And then since I've been here, we have added up another program coordinator who is our major data tracker, does our clinic, our brand new clinician track or pathway to promotion called the master clinician track, handles all that promotion material, and is also works with us on our diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm, wow. So when you say brand new, did you have to... Uh, put the job descriptions together, recruit, interview, hire, or you walked into those folks being in place already, brand new? So the director had been in place two, three months before I started. I And she had interviewed um, the two, pro, or the executive assistant and the program coordinator, and then together we hired the, the next program coordinator. But I did... Ha- interview and get to help pick the director. And it has just been an amazing group of individuals um, to work together. I, I, I couldn't imagine a better group of people to work with, especially coming into a new position. Yeah, that's, that, is, that is such a blessing to not have to walk into a mess or any crisis or drama or um, an office with no resources and no budget, and you're a one-person show. So, Oh, and I forgot. We also have a Center for Women in Medicine and Science, oh, wow. and they're also under my umbrella, and they have um, uh, also a program coordinator who's a halftime person who's terrific, very nicely structured and resourced. And you report directly to whom? The dean. The dean. Wow, that's nice. Okay. And about how many faculty do you have in the School of Medicine in Minnesota? So we have about 2,200 faculty um, with an additional about 1,500 that are adjunct faculty. And we're scattered over essentially the entire city of Minneapolis and Duluth as well. You know, we have our regional campus there with faculty as well. Okay. Let's get into something innovative, unique, something you're excited about, um, you'd like to share with our faculty development, academic affairs, family? So I think one of the issues that we talk about in the group of faculty affairs is that that session, you know, what keeps you up at night? Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was a cute name for a session until I took this job. Oh, no. (laughs) And then I realized, yeah, there there are things that definitely keep keep us awake at night. And so I view that, you know, what I get to do for faculty development is very positive and very good for the faculty, good for the institution. But I also think of professionalism, disruptive faculty members as as an opportunity to really look at how do you how do you tackle those issues across the entire institution, especially since our clinical sites are are scattered. You know, we have affiliated institutions, we have multiple practice sites. How do you bring all this together to really give everyone the advantage of a great working and learning environment? So one of the things that I wanted to tackle right away was how do we how do we deal with with people that are struggling? And how do we make things better across the culture? And so it's not particularly, I don't think, innovative or new, but one of the first things I set out to do was to really get a good relationship with the human resources, both on the medical school side and on the clinical practice side, so we could really work together and to identify who is struggling, 
before they get into situations where there are there may be formal complaints or concerns registered. But how do we how do we find those people and how do we reach out and how do we help them? And part of that was um, I have twenty I work with twenty seven chairs and how do you let the chairs know that you want to help them do this that you really do want to help their faculty you want to help make their job easier because you want to help their faculty deal with the pressures that they deal with every day and so one of the very early things we did was we just tried to set out some expectations some some trying to improve that culture of reporting things before they're problematic letting people know what the resources are available and how do we how do we reach out um, in the most inclusive way we can to help our faculty do the best they can because they they are dealing with incredible pressures from all different sources and sides. So that was, I think, one of the first things that I really wanted to, to move forward on. So we use a lot of the, the um, of Hickson's work out of Vanderbilt and really trying to encourage that openness and that letting us know and that we will work with, on things as, as, as much as, as we can with the chairs, with the faculty, with everybody to try to work through these issues and improve the, the work and the learning environment for everyone. Since you've been there in Minnesota only 10 months and you've decided to tackle professionalism, I'm wondering how you came upon that. Did you engage for example, in this appreciative inquiry model where you went on a listening and learning tour and met all these 27 chairs and talked to them and then you discerned that there was a potential issue with faculty members who were struggling? And or did your dean say to you, Amanda, this is an issue, uh, I, I, I feel it, it's palpable, or here are some data that show that uh, professionalism is an issue. How was that? Uh, how was um, how that come upon as your number one mission versus any other um, thing you want to tackle? Um, I think the first, well, three things. So the first was that I think it is just so foundational across every workplace that there always can be improvement and there always can be movement made in that area. Um, the second was. It was exactly that. It was talking to all the chairs, and actually, it there was a there was um, a kind of a red balloon that was floated that gave me a hint that things were going on, but they were falling between the cracks. That one group of people didn't know what another group of people knew, and so faculty who were struggling were kind of falling between the middle. So I kind of have a had an indicator that there may be something going on. And then it was talking to the chairs. And I think it was it was not so much about, you know, tell me what's going on. It was it was tell me how I can help you help how can I help you help your faculty. Um, so it wasn't so much uh, I knew there was glaring problems, um, because I I don't think there are glaring problems. It was just like how how can we make it better by working together? And I think that was really that was really the, the, the main thing that made me do that. And then in talking to the dean, and, and, and the dean is 100% behind this. And uh, so it made a very good, I think, partnership because we both felt that this was a, a, a very high priority for the institution. Yeah. So uh, allow me to 
add a little bit of vinegar to this scenario for just mm-hmm. as folks listening to think about this, because this is so fresh for us at Hopkins. Just yesterday, late afternoon, at our faculty senate, we had a presentation on uh, disruptive behavior and civility and a new policy guideline, something like you mentioned, for um, coming off of the heels of when we we provide a survey or questionnaire to our graduate to the students who are graduating the learners and they are some indicators as you called it red balloons little uh, singing canaries saying that they were experiencing mistreatment so on the heels of those kind of telltale data saying we have a problem here uh, we had a small committee that would put together these a three three and a half page guideline proposal uh, that essentially, the faculty in the faculty senate felt like it weighs weighing very heavily toward the student side, such that uh, one faculty member said, "This is good. We all agree that a learner environment and the learning experience should be paramount. We are actually, you know, obviously a university and, and education is primary, and yet uh, this policy, as it set forth." almost um, is is very heavy-handed toward the faculty because the faculty member seemingly could be blindsided by this series of guidelines or protocols where all of a sudden at stage four, they're getting a call in to go meet somebody because there's been a complaint lodged X steps backwards that the faculty member wasn't even aware of. And this whole debate arose around... um, more burden on faculty members who many times are mentoring that's uncompensated effort and they're engaging in all this extra, extra, extra activity. And now we want to throw some more guidelines with, you know, air quotes, meaning that they're going to have some more directives and then perhaps may even be blindsided by some, and sometimes, you know, some students who are being unreasonable in their demands. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how you carefully weighed this effort of professionalism without creating uh, an environment or perhaps a sentiment among the faculty that, are you kidding? Um, there's now something else that we're not doing well or that we are have to pay attention to or do another learning module or do you, do you hear or see what I'm getting at that, you know, that um, did you experience any of that or were you concerned or how did you navigate that without um coming across by your faculty as being uh, punitive in some way? So I think it's really about, is it something that's coming down as, here, here's a, you know, we have a code of conduct um, that's pretty vague, you know, but it, it, it is what we all should aspire to. But we didn't, we didn't come down with, here's exactly what you need to do, and here's how you should behave, and here's, you know, we, it wasn't a top-down it's very much a bottom up. Uh, we all want to work in a place that respects us. We all want to work in a place where learners are treated very appropriately. And it really has come very much, I would say, from the ground up. So our medical education, our UME um, faculty have really worked to to support and to help our learners um, deal with some of the things that happen, and we we work together. Um, you can't have a, a medical education group that says, "Okay, here's a problem with this faculty member. 
um, and then not ever talk to the fact, you know, uh, someone who can actually assist or help that faculty member. So we've made it a very, I would say, more of a constructive process as opposed and a ground up process as opposed to a top down. Mm-hmm. Here's the behavior. Here's what's going to happen if you do this. Right. And we've made it. I want to say personal. It's all of us working together um, across our across you know education, human resources, faculty affairs. We communicate well, and we have the faculty and the learner, or you know the trainee. We want people to be successful in what they're doing, and I'm a firm I'm a firm believer that people don't wake up in the morning to be disruptive that stuff happens. And in our new faculty orientation, we've added, you know, what, what are triggered, what is disruptive behavior? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what triggers it? What triggers it for you? How do you recognize it? What are the strategies around dealing with that so that, it, so that you can acknowledge that it's there and you can hopefully avoid having something happen that you don't really want to happen? So I think it's that it's not a top-down, it's a groundswell and I think a, a, a really a desire to have a better culture. That's great. I, I love it. I think it's anytime we address cultural change, civility, professionalism, disruptive behavior, uh, burnout, resilience, equity, all these, they're huge and they're so complex and they're, they just reach from the, the roots to the very tippy top of the, the twigs and the branches and it's just it's just never easy, and so I, I applaud you at doing this in a way that seems like it's just been embraced and not um, not been one of those another uh, a hammer. I, I always worry, you know, as we all do, about protecting our faculty and um, worry that we're just throwing more things on them at them and being critical. So this sounds like your approach has been very inclusive and um, not something that has been looked upon as some other thing that faculty have to do. So, good for you. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, you know, mandatory training and preventing gender bias, um, which can be come across as a very top-down, you know, take the training, yep, you're all, you're all good now. Um, this, is, this is kind of the inverse of that. And I will say, there, I'm sure there are people that are not happy with it, and I'm sure there are people that are, you know, that are, are resistant to doing it um, out of, you know, 2,000 plus faculty, that will happen. But it's a slow, slow, slow cultural change process. We just have to take it from there, really. What else would you want to share with a group of us? Yeah, so we, our dean, actually, um, we have monthly meetings with our department chairs. And we have, he has decided that at every single department chair meeting that the topic of gender equity um, will be addressed in some way, shape, or form. And we are in the midst of doing a very large salary gender equity study. And so we started, you know, talking about that. Um, and now we have, we've changed again to not only talking about that, but talking about how do we all, how do we get smarter about how we, how, again, culture, what is our culture around this? And I, I think it was really um, an eye-opening 
situation where I realized that, you know, I have quite a bit of HR type responsibility background and I've, you know, been to a lot of faculty development. I've been in these leadership training courses such as ELAM. And most chairs don't have that experience. And so it was a real wake up that you have to you have to give the chairs material they can use that's practical, that's still very based in best practices or based in literature, whether it's from academic healthcare or whether it's from business literature. But you need to give them something to kind of level the, the playing ground around some of these issues. And so I've started doing what I call two-minute tips for chairs, and they, they're very focused on specific topics. So we did one on sponsorship. How is it different from mentorship? How do you do it? What specific, what specific actions as a chair can you take to sponsor people for opportunities in their career? We've done how do you, how do you negate kind of the negative impact of implicit bias when you're interviewing or when you're negotiating a startup package with someone? And they're just very straightforward, practical not not assuming everyone knows things about what I may know or you may know or other associate deans for faculty affairs may know and just say, okay, what for those that know it, great. Uh, for, but for those who don't or don't think about when they're interviewing, how do how do they look to the interviewee? How, what does their office look like? what 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 perceptions are there? how do they how do they? get rid of some of the things that may give people a negative impression of them and vice versa. How do they look at a person who walks into their office to interview? What are their implicit bias and biases? And, and we all have them, but how do you, how do you acknowledge them and how do you kind of get rid of any negative impact that you come from that? And this is beyond training in unconscious bias and those kinds of things, which we do do. So it's been it's been a lot of fun to try to figure out how to distill those ideas into very quick, again, one-page things that that chairs can take and look at and go, oh, I get this, um, and and maybe I will think about it as I go through my day-to-day work, and maybe I will be able to incorporate some of those things. So. I think having a dean say this, we're going to talk about this at every fact, every heads meeting and bringing, looking at it from different lenses and different approaches, I think has been helpful. I mean, we're very early in this, but it's, it's been good. So this is so important. I love this two minute tips for chairs. Now, can you be clear um, on the, you're saying at this monthly meeting with all the chair, all the chairs, there's actually an agenda item that says gender equity. And then in that segment is when you do your two-minute tip. With It sounds like it's a one-page handout. Or can you tell us, help us understand how this two-minute tip happens in the monthly sure. agenda? Sure. So the, the agenda for the meetings typically will involve multi, you know, multiple things um, from education, from research, from faculty affairs. So every month there is an Office of Faculty Affairs update 
And then under that agenda item will be something about the if we have an update on the salary gender equity study, that will go in there. Or I will do two-minute tips, or we will do both. Um, we have presented some of the articles out of the Lancet issue um, that was on women. Um, we probably will be talking about the AAMC recent monograph that came out this week on how to work on salary equity. Um, those are, So we have 10 to 15 minutes of the agenda every month to talk about these issues. Wow, that, that, that says something right there. That is so important that your dean recognizes the value of your Office of Faculty Affairs to put it on an agenda item, make it a standing agenda item. We talked to Daryl Kirch on the podcast a, a little bit ago, and he also was talking about the value that our deans uh, place in faculty affairs, faculty development, because I said, well, what do the deans think about us? You know, because he's on the Council of Deans and he, he rubs elbows with these council, these deans all the time. And I said, you know, how can we in our offices demonstrate our value? What do our deans need from us and want from us and, you know, help us to help them? And he basically said, you're not hearing from your dean. It's because you're doing a good job. And, and th- these deans do recognize the value of um, what you do. And it's not a huge topic of conversation because everybody knows that they've got good people doing important, valuable work. And the fact that your dean, however, makes this a standing agenda item. I mean, everybody knows that you can mention anything you want during a meeting, but until it takes a place, a real place, as a institutionalized part of the agenda, um, I don't think it's, you know, really taken seriously to me because... At Hopkins, we on our monthly dean meetings with the department directors, we have, for example, the United Way update. There's always a United Way update because, and that says right away, well, obviously, if something's an agenda, you value it. So it's it's a brief, you know, 20, 30 second update. Where are we on our United Way and who, what departments are really meeting their targets, who's not? So that says something. And, and the fact that your dean puts that on the the agenda sends a message loud and clear. This is what's important to us. So that is just amazing. And I love your two minute tips for chairs. That is a really great idea. Yeah. And we have our center for women in medicine science. It's relatively new. Uh, It went into effect a few, probably maybe six months before I started and they are incredibly strong and they have a great leader who is super organized. They have four, action groups, they work on specific things, and they are just a terrific resource to me and to the dean in terms of one of the things that we we look at are having women represented equally on committees. And it is, and again, the dean will say, how? How, how can I identify people? So we, we're like, of all people, not just women, but how to, so we are constantly on the lookout for emerging leaders, for those who were just promoted, for those who are active, who have stepped up and said, yes, I'm interested in X or Y, but also for the people that don't volunteer themselves, but have, but the chairs identify as you need to talk to this person. This person has incredible leadership potential. And we, we, we try to meet with those people because I think part of getting equal representation as you move up 
into senior senior rank and the opportunity for leadership positions is is having a light shone upon you. And there are many people that just don't feel they have the time, don't feel they have the expertise, don't feel that that it, they're the right person, and so don't volunteer for things. And so we, we try to make an effort across the board to think about people that we want to shine the light on and get into these early, early career growth opportunities. Right. Again, we're, try- we're, we're heavily researched. We have to balance that with promotion and tenure and grants and all this, you know, our traditional academic measures of success. But you can do that, yeah. and it's and it's how do you how do you get people into a culture where that is valued and and that is that is desired? And fortunately, we have a dean who believes in that. We were able to add metrics onto the deans or into the chairs evaluations, annual evaluations, and we were able to add in addition to what we collect through you know promotion and um, various metrics that our offices look at, but we were also able to add on presentations by women, startup packages by women, women in leadership positions within the departments as part of data collection from the the departments, because we couldn't access that data very readily centrally, but to give the deans a, a visual every year of what how are the departments doing? How are the chairs doing? And again, giving time on an agenda is important for saying this is important to us as an institution. But putting it into a department chair's evaluation mm. is another way of saying this is really important to the institution and we want to support that. I love that accountability. That's so important. Yeah, lip service is one thing. But when it comes down to brass tacks and you're being held accountable and your, your numbers are going to be compared to others, that's where the rubber really hits the road. Yeah, so I do have to say, just being around the group on faculty affairs for, for probably, I guess, nine or ten years now, yeah. um, going to the meetings, listening, um, listening to your podcasts, um, yeah. give, give me tips, give me things I can try um, I've decided not, you know, I don't think we ever want to do something that's going to be perfect. Sometimes it's just important to do something and see what happens and measure what you do. Um, and so we have, you know, we have very short-term things going on. We have long threads of efforts going through the office, but we're, but we, it is something that we want to continually build on. And, and I have to say, being part of the GFA really jump-started that. I think one great example um, went to the meeting last year and someone presented what they what they attract over their course of time as a associate dean of faculty affairs and I thought, oh, we should track what we do. And so we track um, what are the complaints, incidents, questions where we have actually had to intervene. And we give them kind of a severity code, you know, um, something we can answer in, in minor, you know, takes two phone calls and it's done, negligible, but then we have minor, we have moderate with not much time, moderate with a lot of time, and then severe and critical. And we've been tracking now for about six months. And not it's because I think it's important that we know what we're doing, right. <laughs> but also at some point to, to 
perhaps even say, hey, this is what we do. Um, this is what we've resolved. This is what's ongoing. And just in a very general kind of way, here's how, this is how many issues we deal with that are really take a lot of our time and are really major issues. And here are the ones that, you know, we can deal with quickly. So I did pick up, you know, track what you do. And I thought, oh, that's a great tip. You know, I'll pass that along today um, because it really does help. Yeah, you've done a lot in 10 months. I just can't, I can't believe that you've in, implemented so many of these new activities and policies and guidelines and interventions in 10 quick months. So, Well, it's a work in progress, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I wanted to just circle back real quick to something you said that was really important. And I, and I love the way you put it. You said, you know, thinking about how do we get smarter about these things. And I love the way you said that because it, it so many times I think so many of us are institutions or companies and organizations think, well, we're really good at these things. We're five star rated. We're good there. Let's move on to the next thing. And I like the when you said, how do we get smarter about recognizing that we all have room for improvement, that no matter how good you are or how, how well you think you've mastered a thing, there's always room to tighten up, improve, um, advance, uh, think in, involve or incorporate new or different diverse ways of thinking and looking at things. And what I loved about what your next your next comment was this idea that you know the chairs don't wake up knowing certain things that we know and so by virtue of our years of experience in leadership and faculty development and thinking about these things and attending elam and programs and the gfa conferences we tend to, I think, can take for granted these things. I mean, they become so second nature to us that we're like, well, of course it's important that faculty, you know, have these resources for career advancement. Who doesn't know that? Or who doesn't know that we have this resource or that resource? And it's, geez, a lot of our department chairs, they don't know that. So mm -hmm. I, I, I like how you highlighted that. And I think it's an important thing that we, in our, in our fields, faculty affairs, academic affairs, faculty development, can sometimes uh, forget that we do bring so much value, but because we're so good at it and we love it so well and we, we've been doing it for so long, we think, well, it's just common sense by now. But there's no such thing that we have to always approach what we do with fresh eyes, recognizing that there are a lot of people for whom this this is news, uh, it, it's new stuff. And so we do bring a lot to our institutions. And um, I just think that's really important to emphasize. And I, I like I liked how you said that, you know, how do we get smarter about something? And yeah. um, that's just love it. And I think the other the other piece, I think, is, as, a, as the group on faculty affairs, one of our challenges is how do we actually measure the impact that we have? Mm. You know, how do we know that this mentor training program is successful? How do we know this faculty development series is of benefit? And I think we we wrestle with that. I wrestle with it. My office wrestles with it. Probably everyone wrestles with it. It's like, how do you actually yeah. measure the outcomes of what we do? So I think that's a big challenge for, for our our field um, right. is is how do we actually measure what we do so that's think that i have no magic answer for that but it, it's like it's it makes us think how can we do this better so we can actually measure something and measure the effectiveness of what we do and you're doing it and you're starting it and you you talked about that by collecting data and systematically thinking about 
um, what are we doing and how are we doing it? And, uh, uh, you know, above and beyond outputs, you know, counting how many, much of this and that and how many seminars and workshops and programs and attendees and, and those kinds of, you know, smiley face program evaluation critique sheets. But yeah, how do you, that's the challenge in, in our space. And I struggle with that all the time is feeling like a, a, what somebody once accused me of being a superficial cheerleader. And I just, my jaw all dropped to the ground and I felt horrible that, you know, what you do is so nice. Oh, that's so cute. That's really sweet. How nice. But uh, a pat in the head kind of a thing without recognize you know, recognizing that there are short-term outcomes, intermediate outcomes, and long-term outcomes. So yes, ideally, if we could zoom ahead and talk about retention and mm-hmm. leadership positions assumed and uh, growth and, and satisfaction and m- increased morale or sense of engagement or sense of community or short-term is, yes, I'm going to negotiate for better, bigger lab space or yes, I put out X number more manuscripts or grant applications or better manage my time. There's just so much and how do you measure it? And without having randomized controlled trials and having a comparison group and people, some faculty want to take your course and you randomize them to some, you know, time and attention. I mean, it's so complex. And I just am so thankful that there are people who are our deans and are people like Daryl Kirch who get it and they do understand that, you know, as, as Daryl said, it, you can't expect people, faculty members, by osmosis to know about professional development. We just times are, t- are are different from back in the day when you just kind of showed up and saw your patients, did your research, wrote your papers, and got your grants, and everything was lockstep right. and um, a little bit more prescribed. Now it's a lot more complex, and so right. thank thankfully some people do appreciate that. And I just love stories that we hear on the podcast that emphasize and re- and encourage those of us out there who maybe do have these periods of doubt and feeling like this is complicated, it's hard. And I love how Dan Shapiro from Penn State on the podcast talked earlier about, he's like, I'm constantly confused. It's a constant every day. I have constant confusion. It's just so much coming at us. And yet... We have that constant confusion and sometimes pain and, and feeling so badly about our faculty members struggling. And yet, thankfully, it is countered by the joy in, in our hearts, you know, as we all talk about that just sense of, you know, knowing that this is right. I'm doing, I'm making an impact and there's meaning in my work and in, uh, I'm making a difference. So it's it's really quite a, a roller coaster of a job, isn't it? It is. I was, when I took this job, I knew it would be a lot of, you know, promotion and tenure and policy. And um, I come out of operations. So I am, I'm like, boom, fast. <laughs> problem, fix it, problem, fix it. And I thought, ooh, my big risk here is I'm going to go, I'm just not going to do well with things that take three to five years to do. But thankfully, there are plenty of opportunities for a short term. Um, for short-term <laughs> interventions and short-term term wins, and it's um, it has not been boring. I will 100% say that. And I think the complexity and the complexity of what we do, and the and the complexity of our organizations, is what keeps us coming back tomorrow. So, 10 months into your job, what do you think is going to be around the corner for you at at the end of year one and year three and year five? Well, there's a plan. <laughs> ah. 
So, yeah. So I think, you know, some of the longer term goals or aspirations are really about culture. It's about equity. It's about diversity. It's about um, we are actually running, I'm running a thread that, um, again, I got through GFA on, on approaching faculty development from a, from a faculty life cycle perspective. So we, we're pacing out the long, the long haul. We are working on the short term, and we just keep moving forward. But definitely looking out um, a couple years from now, um, I hope that the things that we're doing now are continuing to progress. Um, things will happen. People will change. Um, the environment may change. The complexity of our healthcare system is always changing. And so it's being open, open to those opportunities, but always sticking with we stand, you know, my office, myself, we stand for the integrity of the institution, we stand for, for the dean, we stand for the department chairs, and we stand for the faculty. And somehow we have to navigate all that in a, in a, in a moving, ever-evolving healthcare environment um, with learners and trainees and and staff and and everything and i think that that makes it fun well said well is there anything else you'd like to share with us amanda this has been a wonderful conversation no i just thank you again for giving me the opportunity to participate in this i i enjoyed listening to every one of them yeah and i think this is just i i love that our gfa family and friends around the world are listening in and it I do. I, I learn so much from everybody, and it's. Um, I hope everybody else is enjoying it as much as we all are. Everybody, you've been listening to Dr. Amanda Termulin, the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.